Israelites tell a story that came from what to them was the ancient past. There once was a time when all the people of the world were exactly the same. They came together with a bold idea to make a name for themselves and to ensure the permanence of their unity. They tried to build a city with a tower that would reach into the sky. But God foiled this plan, confounding their speech so they could not understand one another and then doing exactly what the people feared, dispersing them across the earth. Thus the Tower of Babel failed to rise, and the world became a place where diversity was the default. A world where God preferred there be many peoples, not just one. A world with many nations, many languages, many lands. Now here's what's interesting about this story, which we find in the book of Genesis. Lots of ancient people claim themselves to be the original people of the earth. They told elaborate tales in which they had sprung directly from the gods. But the Israelites didn't do this. Instead, they situated themselves amongst these people who were scattered by the Tower of Babel. The Israelites in Canaan told a story in which they came from somewhere else. It began with their forefather, a man named Abraham. They said that he had left his home city of Ur, the great Babylonian metropolis in Mesopotamia, on instructions from God to Lech Lecha, to go forth. He took his family on a journey across the Fertile Crescent to the land of Canaan, which God had promised him and his descendants. From this we learn that the Israelites understood themselves to be people who had left behind everything that they had known, had severed their national identity, headed into the uncertain wilderness, and trusted in God, for they had been chosen for this purpose. Their word for this, for the kind of person who embraces this lifestyle, was Hebrew. Abraham the Hebrew, as he is referred to in the Bible, a word that they later attached to their group of people as a whole, and then their language. This story works because it seems to mirror the historical record. As we've seen, the Israelites slowly separated themselves from the Canaanites, severing their Canaanite identity in favor of a new Israelite one. But what is hard to pin down so deep in the past is what exactly that distinct Israelite identity was, and who exactly got to be an Israelite. The answer most likely has to do with Israel's relationship with their national god, Yahweh, the same god worshipped by Jews today. Although it took centuries for the Israelites to settle on monotheism, they held their relationship with Yahweh to be special, to be based on what is called the Covenant. And it's relatively simple. Yahweh promises to take good care of the Israelites, to bless them, to ensure they remain secure in the land of Israel, and in return, the Israelites promise to worship God. Over these last few episodes, we've been talking about the Israelites' place in history. We're driving towards the central question of this season, how did the Jews become Jews? And the answer is that first they were Israelites. So for today, we'll pull together what we've got so far to get at this distinct Israelite culture. And key to that culture will be the Israelites' understanding of, and their relationship with, their national god, Yahweh. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world.
The ancient Mediterranean was a crowded, highly interconnected, globalized, cosmopolitan world not that different from our own these days. The historian Eric Klein tells this remarkable tale that was found by scholars examining ancient texts. The Assyrian king Hammurabi, who ruled in the late 1700s BCE, and whose law code we talked about a few episodes back, Hammurabi ordered a pair of sandals from the island of Crete, a thousand miles away. When they arrived, which we can assume took longer than two-day delivery, he tried them on, didn't like them, and promptly returned them. The point is that centuries before the Israelites came on the scene, the Near East was hopping. There were a lot of people around, and a lot of movement too, as empires rose and fell and competed with one another for territory, trade, and influence. There was a globalized economy centered around not oil, like today's Middle East, but a metal that was 90% copper and 10% tin, bronze. Hence the name for this era, the Bronze Age. But more or less at the same time that the Israelites came on the scene, all these Bronze Age empires collapsed. And it was not a coincidence. We're not completely sure why, but the mega story is likely that this global collapse is due to climate change. In the Near East, in today's Israel and Syria and parts of Jordan and Egypt, we have evidence of a drought that lasted around 200 years. You can imagine, agriculture collapse, famine was widespread, starving people migrate for food, and they also can't produce as much, so international trade collapses. Hammurabi can't get his sandals anymore. Everyone's economy tanks. In the Near East, these weakened civilizations were suddenly faced with a massive influx of the Sea Peoples from the Mediterranean, who were themselves migrants fleeing the very same problems. There was huge political destabilization. The collapse of the Bronze Age civilizations around the year 1200 cleared the way for new people to rise up and take root, including, as we've seen, the Israelites. So this was the world in which the Israelites came into being. And the point is, going back to the Tower of Babel story, the Israelites knew they didn't come out of nowhere. They were not the single group of people who existed before the Tower, but were part of the diverse world that came after Babel's failure. As we've seen, they weren't even yet a distinct culture, but were instead a branch of the Canaanites. When we go back archaeologically to this time period, we find that the Israelite culture doesn't really look much different than its neighbor's Canaanite culture. Yet in their national narrative, the story they told themselves in the Hebrew Bible about who they are, and the way that Jews today understand their national story, the Israelites did single out one enormously significant difference from the Canaanites. And that was their new national god, named Yahweh. So we talked last time about where Yahweh came from physically, the land of Midian, an area to the south of Canaan in what is today Saudi Arabia. The small group of people who fled Egyptian slavery may have made a pit stop in Midian, where they picked up Yahweh and brought him with them to Canaan. Or perhaps Midianite traders doing business with the Israelites brought Yahweh along to get acquainted. Either way, the Israelites ended up adopting Yahweh as their own national god, at first alongside the Canaanite god El, but over time, Yahweh and El were merged, and Israel dropped the El name, leaving just Yahweh. But what is this name, Yahweh? It comes from the Hebrew Bible's word for God. It uses four letters, Yud, He, Vav, and He again. In English, this translates to Y-H-W-H. 
Hebrew is written without vowels, so when we try to pronounce Y-H-W-H, we end up saying Yahweh. It's purposefully gibberish. Y-H-W-H doesn't actually mean anything in Hebrew. It's the stand-in letter symbol that means God. The fancy name for this is Tetragrammaton. By the way, in German, the letters get translated as J-H-V-H, from which we derive the pronunciation Jehovah, as in Jehovah's Witness. And in Arabic, I mean, we could play this game all day, the word for God is Allah. Now, another note, and this is getting a little technically in the weeds, but some of my Jewish listeners might be confused, because when we're reading Hebrew and we come across this gibberish word Yahweh, we don't actually pronounce it Yahweh. A lot of Jews might not be familiar with the term. And that's because when Jews look at those letters, the Y-H-W-H, we pronounce it as Adonai. Adonai is simply another term meaning God. Religiously, because the name of God is sacred, we try to avoid saying it out loud, and there's a worry that Yahweh gets a little too close for comfort. So when we're reading the Bible, we make sure to take a wide detour around the word Yahweh by instead pronouncing it as Adonai, even though that word has no connection with the actual letters on the page. It's a little confusing. Anyway, back to it. Now, every ancient people have their gods, of course, and in this the Israelites were no different. In fact, this was well before monotheism took root, so central to later Judaism and taken for granted in the Western world today. At this stage, the Israelites were at best henotheistic, that is, they worshipped their one god, Yahweh, without denying the existence of other gods. In the book of Exodus, we find the passage, Who is like you, God, among the celestials? And this became a lyric in a frequently sung Jewish prayer called Michamocha, a regular part of the liturgy that you synagogue-goers will recognize. It's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is that none is like Yahweh or Adonai. But the fact that the question is posed at all acknowledges that there were other gods to be theoretically compared to. But there are two things that set Yahweh apart uniquely from the other gods. And here is where we get into how the Israelites understood themselves as a distinct people. In the first, Yahweh is a god who acts in history. The other gods of the Near East are primarily associated with natural forces. Wind and rain and storm and crops and death. In absorbing El, Yahweh did take on some of those properties. That same prayer I just mentioned, Michamocha, is also known as the Song of the Sea. It's a victory song that the Israelites sang after crossing the Red Sea. It describes Yahweh as possessing the necessary storm god abilities to close the waters of the Red Sea on top of Pharaoh's army, and it may be one of the very oldest texts found in the Hebrew Bible. It may have been written even in the 1100s BCE, back when the Israelites were just beginning the process of merging El and Yahweh. But otherwise, Yahweh stands above and beyond the nature attributes. This is a God who acts in history, who is invested in earth earthly events. And this is a radical and unique idea that the Israelites introduced into the world. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of Egypt, Yahweh tells the Israelites. He doesn't say you should obey me because I'm the God who created the universe or causes the sun to rise and fall. Yahweh reaches into Egypt to free the Israelites from bondage. He leads them across the desert wilderness, gives them the law to live by, and brings them into the land of Canaan. Yahweh moves pieces around the board, picks people to carry out his message, makes promises and keeps them. 
He causes armies to rise and fall in accordance with how well the Israelites are obeying the commandments. This idea of a God who acts in history brings us to the second attribute that the Israelites emphasized. It's the idea of chosenness, of the Israelites as God's chosen people. It's not about supremacy. It's not about the Israelites, or today the Jews, being better than anyone else. It's rather about the relationship between the Israelites and Yahweh. They have a covenant that binds them. And this covenant is the bedrock principle of what became Judaism. God promises to bless the Israelites in exchange the Israelites promise to keep to God. That is, to fulfill the commandments, to follow Jewish law, to have no other gods before Yahweh. This was the deal made with Abraham when he left behind everything he knew in Babylon to come to Canaan on God's promise. Yahweh chose the Israelites to have this covenant with him. The biblical scholar Ilana Pardes writes that the Israel nation as a whole, metaphorically speaking, is God's son. God prioritizes Israel, and in this, writes Pardes, we see a reversal of the basic law of primogeniture. And we're familiar with this idea that the father's inheritance goes to the firstborn son. And if you read the Hebrew Bible, you see time and time again how this rule is upended in favor of a son, or sometimes daughter, who's further down the line. And perhaps the most famous example is that of Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the younger son, connives to steal the birthright inheritance from Esau, the oldest. And in the Hebrew Bible, Jacob ends up on top. It's no coincidence that Jacob's name is changed soon after to Israel. Ilana Pardes notes that what we find in the Bible we see on a national level. The late-born nation, she writes, that came to the stage after all its neighbors had assumed their historical roles, is elevated by God to the position of the chosen firstborn. What we can see here is a certain synthesis between the historical record, the Hebrew Bible, and the Israelites' understanding of their relationship with God. And those last two, the Hebrew Bible and the covenantal relationship, they can be seen as reflecting the actual history, in which Israel rose as other Bronze Age peoples were collapsing. They ended up thriving because for a moment they didn't have a lot of competition, especially as Egypt was retreating as the main power in Canaan. What happened in history is reflected then in what the Israelites wrote about the power of their God and how they understood their national identity as being chosen. As Ilana Pardes writes, Israel is a chosen nation, God's nation, but the reason for its chosenness remains obscure. Indeed, the Hebrew Bible can be read as one long narrative of the historical struggle of the Israelites to uphold their end of the covenant. When they compiled the Hebrew Bible centuries later and looked back on their past, this is the struggle they saw taking place, which explained nearly everything that happened to them as a people. When they were holding to the covenant and thus enjoyed God's favor, things went well. When they didn't, they were defeated by their enemies. But of course, this was the Israelite analysis centuries later. Still back in the 1200s and 1100s BCE, the Israelites were just emerging as a distinct people with this developing but still early culture under Yahweh. We've talked about who the Israelites were, but who was an Israelite? For decades now, a popular and perennial debate in the Jewish community is, who counts as a Jew? 
There are the religious rules. There are the rules for immigrating to the state of Israel. There are rules in different denominations and movements in the United States. There's personal choice. There's any number of ways to look at the question and any number of ways to decide just who gets to call themselves Jewish. If we go back to the ancient worlds, we can also ask, who was an Israelite? What were the criteria? Who decided? And the answer is, we don't really know. Even centuries later, the Israelites struggled with the question, again, as we see reflected in the Hebrew Bible. You might expect that once the Israelites defeat the Canaanites and permanently settle, that you wouldn't hear about non-Israelites anymore, except perhaps as enemies. And we do find that. The Hebrew Bible takes extraordinary pains to ensure a strict separation between an Israelite and a non-Israelite. Intermarriage is a sin. Mingling with foreigners is suspect. One should be wary of doing business with non-Israelites, and on and on. Which makes a lot of sense. When you're trying to define yourself away from something, you must insist on building strict walls to ensure that no one gets confused about who they are and strays back over to the other side. And yet, the Israelites can't escape writing about non-Israelites who nevertheless do good things. The non-Israelite woman Yael helps the Israelites win a crucial battle. The non-Israelite woman Ruth marries an Israelite and becomes the great-grandmother of King David, Israel's greatest king. David goes on to murder a non-Israelite, Uriah the Hittite, for which the king is punished. There's an obvious historical explanation for all this. The Hebrew Bible is reflecting the reality of the lived experience. There were lots of people in and around Canaan, not just the Israelites. Even centuries later that was the case. And while some of those relationships were bad, others were good. And in those early years anyway, as archaeology has shown us, the Israelites were pretty much the same as the Canaanites. So who got to be an Israelite, as opposed to a Canaanite or something else? Well, we can hazard a guess at a relatively simple and straightforward answer. If you accepted the covenant with Yahweh, you got to call yourself an Israelite. If you treated Yahweh as your God, even if you recognized that there were other gods, then you were accepted into the Israelite family. Gradually, the Israelites came to inhabit certain areas, so that the inhabitants of certain towns and regions were considered Israelite. But really... The chief distinction between an Israelite and a Canaanite, the thing that set the early Israelites apart, was their embrace of this remarkably innovative relationship with their national god, Yahweh. So what's the point of all this? The Israelite national story tells a narrative of a people shaped by the land, by their relationship with Yahweh, and by the historical experiences they remembered. The scholar Alana Pardes sums it up well. She notes that national literature was rare in the ancient world. Israel's focus on why it exists was exceptional in the Near East. Israel has a life story, a biography of sorts. She writes, It was conceived in the days of Abraham. Its miraculous birth took place with the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, then came a long period of childhood and restless adolescence in the wilderness, and finally adulthood was approached with the conquest of Canaan. This is the story that the Hebrew Bible fills in with the tales of the patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah and Rachel. The Exodus, which we've seen probably was a real event for a small group of slaves who eventually became Israelites and maybe even brought Yahweh to Canaan. The story of a great military conquest led by Joshua and explained to them how God had delivered on the promise of the land 
and explained how they were able to displace the Canaanites, which in reality was a gradual process of settlement, not a sweeping military victory. And we know from the pharaoh Merneptah that the Israelites were there in the year 1208 BCE, which means that they must have been there even well before that date. But here's the larger point. If you're Jewish today, this historical stuff doesn't really need to matter that much. That the Israelites come from the Canaanites, that Yahweh might come from Midian, even that Yahweh is a male god, as he was to the Israelites, all of this is immaterial to the central importance of the covenant. From the covenant between Yahweh and the Jews comes the truth, with a capital T. The value system, the ethics, the imperative towards justice and compassion, the idea about what makes a moral and just society, and all the biblical stories that talk about these ideas, these things all pull from this original covenant with Yahweh. To obey God on these ideals is to be a blessed people. To act with evil is to be cursed. You can buy into all these historical facts and still come to this conclusion. Knowing the history doesn't take away from the covenant, because it was the covenant that set the Israelites apart and put them on the path towards becoming Jews. These last few episodes have been getting at a deep dive into who the Israelites were, where they come from, and how they ended up in Canaan, the Promised Land, the land of Israel. And now, by the year 1200 or so, they're settled in Canaan and ready to march ahead as a distinct people with their own culture and identity. So now the question becomes, what's next? Who's in charge? How do all these Israelite tribes choose their leaders? How do they start building what will become the Israelite nation? What role will Yahweh play over the next couple hundred years? Time to get into that. It's next episode as we move into what we call the Era of the Judges. As always, I'm at jewadono.com and my email is jewadonopodcast at gmail.com. Huge thanks to all the people who have donated generously so far. Really, really appreciated. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be back soon. Lehitraot. See you later. <laughs>